Welcome to Composers in a Jukebox, a podcast that brings... What? That's my line. <laughs> <laughs> that's my line. You've got to keep that in. That's <laughs> that is your line. We are here. You, you say you want to continue from this part. No. No? Oh, you know what? Let's do it again. Sorry, guys. Okay. Good coordination. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Welcome to Composers in a Jukebox, a podcast that brings together a special breed of musicians in a conversation about their craft. We are here today with Matthew Slater, an experienced composer and conductor known for his work on TV dramas, feature and short films. <laughs> Take two. Take two. Good job so, it's not live. <laughs> oh yes. Imagine if this was on Zoom. Jeez. We should do a live stream next time. No. <laughs> we did one. We did one. That's what um, I used to do back in the day, because I used to do a lot of radio. I used yeah. to be a, a, a critic on a radio show over in Essex, and live radio is hilarious. I messed up so many times, but it was so funny. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so this is part two of our session at Charts. Uh, we are in this lovely studio in the middle of... Where are we, actually? Beethoven Street. Beethoven Street, yes. Beethoven Street. Yeah. Such and a name. <laughs> Love it. Where yeah, else would it be? I mean. Yeah, where else? It's a, it's a brilliant street name they're all um, they're all uh, there's Brahms, road there's mozart road, they're all Bruckner street, as, Bruckner street well. as well yeah. yeah yeah and we've just spent uh, an hour taking a deep dive into uh, the work of the company charts um looking into music prep and orchestration and now we're sitting here with matt slater okay. who is the head of charts um is that is that your official title managing director managing director managing director, yeah. managing director of charts um taking another deep dive into his work as a composer and a conductor Mm-hmm. Um, and so just a rundown of what he's done um, crime drama series such as Endeavour and Grace uh, and documentaries like Delete It you've also produced your own albums um, such as Arrivals mm-hmm. um, as I understand uh, and just to sort of kick this conversation off uh, you've done quite a number of work on long form mm-hmm. uh, TV dramas and stuff like that could you share what your work schedule is like for a long form piece. Yeah, I mean, I'm very lucky that I've had the opportunity to score the old format of long form by that as a feature length drama. So it's basically a television two hour. It's really, a, if you add the adverts, it, it comes in at around sort of 140. But uh, each one of them is, is kind of a, a self-contained feature film. So I've always treated them as self-contained feature film, feature films. So you're not just rehashing themes and ideas from previous episodes. You're, every orchestra lineup we have for those is always subtly different. Um, we've used all sorts of different instrumentation over the years, everything from choirs to, to percussion to all sorts. And it, it's very much led by the episode. So um, because it is such a long-running series, all the ones I work on that go over many, many episodes and you know tens of hours of television, you kind of feel you've got to keep the audience interested with the score. And you've got to be able to recognise an episode from the score, and not just a bank of sounds that happens to be the, the overarching sound of a particular series. So, uh, yeah, I'm very lucky to have, have been able to... There's not many long-form ones out there, actually, because out there, but they're, apparently they're considering that the attention span of people is going down, yeah. and therefore a two-hour slot is too much for people to be able to cope with. It's not true, but a lot of our uh, audiences, shall we say, of a slightly older generation... 
uh, and therefore have slightly more attention span. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean that in a yeah. rude way, but it is, it, it is that kind of traditional Sunday night television where you sit down for a couple of hours and get absorbed in the world of Oxford or Brighton and everyone. I killed off most of Oxford and now I'm killing off most of Brighton. <laughs> <laughs> We're working our way around the country. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And so Endeavour, that's one of the one of the titles that you've been mm-hmm. recently involved in. And um, I mean, I personally haven't seen the entire series, but um, most of us listen to the to the score. And it's uh, the first thing that struck me was um, the the soundtrack album. It's structured in a in, in a, as a set of theme and variations, and it's you know the, the musical language is incredibly rooted in classical tradition. And so, um, Matt, have you received, you know, um, were you like, is your, is your back, is that your background in, in sort of classical, have you had rigorous classical training? Y- yes, um, I did. I was, I was doing, I was studying to be a composer and conductor over at the uh, Cultural Institute School of Music back when I started, all those eons in the mid nineties. Um, and so I, I did have a very formal, formal musical upbringing. Uh, but by the time I hit my third year, I got the opportunity opportunity to work with Barrington Phelong. I entered a competition to compose something for a uh, society, the Society for the Promotion of New Music. I don't know if it's still going, but they are offering a masterclass to work with Michael Kamen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael, unfortunately, I got chosen as one of the five. I was the only person that conducted their piece as well, so that was nice. Michael. Unfortunately, was busy, and Barry Felong stepped into the breach. And that's I worked. I went down there. I did my master class. It went on in the South Bank. And so Barry, I was very lucky. Yeah, know? very lucky. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Although um, friends of mine, uh, Michael Price and James Brett, who also worked for for Cayman, yeah, uh, as well. So hopefully, it would have worked whichever way. We yeah, went, yeah. But I, I got to work with Barry, and he offered me a job, and that's so how I never completed my degree. I, oh, I spent yeah. the best part of twenty five years working at uh, something to interject i've heard i'm not saying i agree with this necessarily but i've heard musicians say the sooner you drop out the greater success you are i have a master's degree so clearly i'm a complete <laughs> failure um yeah, we should so, get out of here. I, I don't know i don't know how that happened you, your but, mic might be a little bit oh yeah it's not really coiled yeah we will be back shortly back shortly all right i'm just gonna I'm, i'll just say that again okay, sorry yeah um so Matt was saying that uh, you know he dropped out of, of school and stuff like that, and quite put it like that. But... <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a very in America way of putting it. <laughs> what I was saying is, I can't remember who said this, but a, a musician, famous musician, said, "The sooner you drop out of music school, the bigger success you are." So. You know, I finished a master's degree, so I don't know what I'm doing. So that's a, that's a mark of pride as no, far as I'm should, concerned, Matt. Let's, let's go. Let's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's yeah. curious. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it was the opportunity when I was, when I was faced with the opportunity to um, either spend my last year of my, my formal learning mm. or go and work with some of the world's greatest orchestras, London Symphony, Royal, Phil- uh, Royal Philharmonic, Philharmonia. We've worked with uh, Berlin Phil. We've worked with everybody all over the world with with, with the work I did with Barry, so it gave me exposure. We spent time in Los Angeles. We did some. He did a lot of films, and I got to see the industry at one of the highest levels. So I learned so much during that process. Oh, sometimes about what not to do as well. Yeah, yeah. And but exposure to some of the world's finest musicians. Oh yeah, it's it's something actually. When I when I uh, so when I was in school, I, I had did another degree in addition to music. But when I added the music degree and talked to my parents, I just said, I'm just letting you know. For this music, I'll finish the other degree. But for this music degree, if I get an opportunity, I'm dropping out. Like I, I just let them know that because, like you, what you're saying is, look, school has some value and things like that. But being in it is the 
probably the biggest education you could possibly have. I think, I think, yeah, having a formal education, understanding that the, the core basic of basics of music, so understanding theory, counterpoint, harmony, all that kind of thing, studying great stories, being having the opportunity to be in an opera, for example. I was in Strinkley's Rake's Progress as I was part of the cast, and it gives you a great opportunity to experience other aspects of music that you otherwise you wouldn't really experience stuck in a studio writing all day. So yeah. it's great for an overview of everything that's going on. But it really is just dipping the toe. Yeah. You really are just dipping the toe. Getting out there working professionally, mm. that's really where the hard work starts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And who are some of the composers that inspired you? Oh, well, there was only one, really. It was always John Williams for me. It's, it's a stock <laughs> answer for most people, I think. But I went to go and see E.T. And obviously I heard Star Wars in 1977 uh, when I was... Uh, was I four? And from a very early age, I, I was just so moved by those end sequences in in that particular score ventures on earth that i wanted to do that one day that was no no i even wrote to john um back when i was about 10 <laughs> and he sent me a signed photo back which we've got hanging in the office right now oh. Uh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh and uh yeah i was always i always found like many people do with opera, actually, it's that that combination of story and, and musical storytelling along with images um and uh, I, I just love the ability to completely change something via you know, the intensity or lack of intensity on, on the score. And it has such control and power over how someone experiences entertainment and how experiences emotions, which was very important to me. So it was always I just wanted to be involved in creating emotions. I didn't quite know how I wanted to do it, but that was how I got involved. And, and then I just sort of followed that path all the way through, more or mm. less. And I was very lucky to have some breaks with working with some well-known people. And then... Unfortunately, um, you know, Barry ended up not being very well. But because I'd been working on Morse and Lewis for so long, ITV thought I had, and I hadn't written anything for TV at this point. They were incredibly supportive. They they gave me the series when he unfortunately passed away. So I was very lucky to have the support of, of ITV, which is an enormous thing to achieve. It's, <laughs> it's you know, it's a wonderful um, group of people to work with, and I only thank them, can't thank them enough for trusting in a composer that hadn't done anything really in drama to suddenly give you a, a primetime drama series for ITV1. And internationally, it's much bigger internationally than it is here mm. as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, in the U.S., it's huge. I mean, it's it's one of the things that... It's, it's funny. There are some U.S. series that I've done stuff on that are not as recognizable as Endeavor to people because it's so... It's it's on PBS, which is a public broadcast thing, and so many people watch it. It's, it's really... It's a huge global reach. I think we were in over 140 something countries in 80 odd languages. So it's it's a huge thing. Japan, um, Australia, all Finland, Germany, France, Spain, mm-hmm. North and South America, Canada, the lights everywhere. And uh, so it's got a very big global reach. So it's um, been an honor to work on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've got a question about uh, some of the music on Endeavor. One thing I think is, is interesting about Endeavor is that Endeavor can sometimes. Uh, cover different genres or different musical genres as well. So when you're doing a, a certain um, type of score, like for instance, um, on the episodes that have to do with puppets, like we, we did this for the album, that's a very different type of music than say the typical Endeavor theme or you know a lot of the Morse theme and things like that. How do you go about kind of being a chameleon while still keeping your own style? Do you do research? Do you have references? Like, how, how do you approach that? Because I think that's very challenging. 
I one of, one of the first things I had to overcome was being afraid of being too bold with Endeavour, trying to preserve the history that had been built up before it. I was worried about there's millions of fans globally, there's more institutions, there's tours at Oxford. It's a very big kind of conglomerate, really. So when I, I was worried about taking the sound so far away from the world that had been established by Barry. But that only lasted like an episode or two because the stories are always, they're quite wacky. Russ Lewis, who writes them, he's a very close friend of mine, he uh, has some wonderful ideas and there's a lot of Easter eggs hidden both in the music and in the cinematography and in, in the whole shooting of it. And I just learned I had to be bold. So we had to do a Baroque opera at one point. So I had to write that, did that, 26 minutes. I've had to, uh, there was one song I had to write which sounded like a Dusty Springfield 1960s classic, which he recorded with orchestra and backline band and everything. We've done that. We've done everything, rock bands, the lot. And it's just to be bold and be true to yourself, really, with this one. It's it's one show that you can't go too far on. I think if I'd had laid up a drum and bass soundtrack mm, or I'd yeah, yeah. Like old jungle <laughs> or whatever you call it these days, it would have obviously caused some problems. Yeah, yeah. But within the remit of an orchestra, we've got away with an awful mm-hmm. lot. We really have. It just it can just take it. It's, it's that kind of show yeah. that's set in the 1960s. You can do anything you like with it. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, that's that's very counter to certain scores today where you know the whole goal is to be minimal so it's kind of nice to have like a counterbalance to that in scores something that's quite bold and you know I, it's, it's, it is i've often felt while i'm conducting these things oh matt you've gone too far this time <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is not going to go through and of course it ends up on television and, yeah and, and it's uh yes it's always a. Uh, uh, with Endeavour, whenever you, whenever I've sat down to compose it, uh, each episode, it's sort of like, where do we go now? What do we do? Let's have a new element. Let's think of something different. Um, and that could be everything from keys and time signatures to instrumentation to style writing. And it, it allows you to, what I've used it for is actually be what haven't I done yet? What haven't I written? That's mm. something I can, so I can show as part of what, 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 what one can do. It gives you the experience to be able to, well, now I know I can write an opera. Now I know I can do everything from string quartets through to large scale, thanks to the help of these lovely guys, large scale Hollywood sounding schools. So it's kind of a bit of a, it's a training ground. It's the best training ground you'll ever get in your life <laughs> to work on a, a big show like that and learn as you go. But it's very much learning on the job. Yeah, of course. And on on that note, do you learn about the music as you go along as well? Like, you know, at the end of, of an episode or a few episodes down, do you find that there are things that you've done previously that you would love to change and love to rework and edit? Well, that's very much what we did with the album, which was to go back and look at some of the key ideas and key themes that uh, I'd established through the series and just do them as I had always wanted them to be done. And... Uh, the feedback from the audience so far has been really great. Uh, people seem to be liking it. And it's at a much grander scale. Obviously, with television, you can't go too much. You've got to bear in mind there is dialogue. I think it's overrated dialogue, but there's... <laughs> just get you definitely don't need sound effects. I'm definitely not. But uh, you've got to bear in mind, obviously, it's, it's, got to, it's got to serve a purpose as well. But when you take the, the images away, it obviously can expand itself. And Morse itself has always had a deep-rooted tradition in classical music. We've recorded um, Mozart's D minor mass, we've done the C minor mass, we've done Wagner, Mendelssohn, Mendelssohn there was a violin concerto we've done, we did last time, but done bits, I don't remember any Beethoven. It tends to be a bit, bit, lot of Bach, actually. And so the opportunity, and we actually, Barry always set this up as, he always re-recorded these pieces, so we didn't go to a library, we just did them live. And I can continue to do that. I've done Verdi, Puccini, all sorts. And so as part of the session, it's such a fun session, so we're whacking a bit of Wagner and play it, or a bit of, we did some Purcell once as well. 
and the rest of the score. So through that, I'm getting the opportunity to conducting recording situation, great works and masterworks that they've become part of the show and become part of the sound. As Matt said, one of the nice things about it too is you get it in the title sequence of, I believe it's the first episode, you get music by Matthew Slater and then they play the Mendelssohn violin concerto. <laughs> Somebody might mistake and go, oh, well, that's, that's brilliant. Mendelssohn and I were talking about this yeah. the other day. <laughs> that's brilliant. Matthew Slater composed this violin. Wow. Well, I have to say, I've got a great big shout out to um, Janice on that one, who was our, our violinist on that. We did it quite quickly because we had to have pace. It's a difficult and fiendish yeah, piece. Just a couple know, takes, you know, right? don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it is she, one of them. Yes, and she need, needled and um, nailed it incredibly well. Um, that was such a fun session to do to try and piece that and that formed the whole front and it was actually in sync with an orchestra uh, that we shot on set and it's one of the best things I've seen between an orchestra they weren't really playing there were some players there who could play and the lady the actress who was who was actually playing the character actually playing the concerto the way it was shot it was so authentic it was she looked she got it under the fingers more or less it didn't sound great on set obviously bless <laughs> but it was uh, and then janice over the top it was absolutely wonderful so yes things like that are just a dream to have as a composer you have done a number of like detective and crime series so what is it about these genres that kind of inspire you i think it's the same thing that uh, inspires the people to watch them i mean there's loads of them out there you think how can there be any more crime series but people love the idea to try and solve the crime they're puzzles yeah. They're, they're yeah. puzzles. People like to solve puzzles. And that's why they're so popular. I think when you get something that has so many layers like Endeavour, and that was particular to that series, um, that you can think you've solved it, or you think you've solved it, but there's always a twist and a turn. And if you've ever... I've had the, the privilege of reading Russ's scripts. And there's so much more to it. You need to watch them three or four times to really get all of the subtleties. That are in there. Endeavour is very much layered. It works at so many different levels. And it is, you know, it is quite a, a thing to try and unravel. And I think that the reason I enjoy doing them is, is, is musically you can send people off down the wrong path. You can enhance what they're yeah. saying. You can really pull the whole smoke and mirrors thing with them. And it's it's uh, a joy to do. It, it is it is like. And of course, the whole Morse thing was set around crossword puzzles. Morse himself was a fan of the crossword puzzle. And Barry famously put in, um, you know, in his characters in Morse code, spelling out. Uh, who, who did it? Uh, we we sort of did that a few times, but we, it's often a, a, a sort of game and cat and mouse that we play with the audience, and oh. and often there's a lot of stuff. For example, this I don't think this is very widely known in uh, one of the series, I think it was series seven, where uh, I had to write a baroque opera, for the other, and we actually cast it and it was on screen. I revealed the whole plot in Italian in the score. <laughs> it's, all, it's all there. So if you ever wow. want to translate it, the whole thing's there. The whole plot is there. With the help of uh, a good friend of mine, um, uh, who was a, 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 a native Italian person, a guy called Nico. And uh, yeah, so he translated it into old Italian. And mm. so it's very hard. I mean, no one's going to ever, ever study, but that's the ultimate crossword. The whole plot is revealed <laughs> in that opera. That is so cool. Like, All the characters are reflected wow. as one's Morse, one's Thursday, and so forth. Uh, that was quite exciting to do. I mean, the fun part about detective and crime scenes, because uh, I, I watch it with my, my partner. So we, we like to watch Agatha Christie's. Uh, uh, Detective Poirot and Miss mm -hmm. Marple, we like to like guess who actually is the killer, and then we always like debate like, oh, who's gonna, who's gonna, who's actually the killer, and whoever got the killer gets an extra nice meal from oh, the other. You know? oh, that's <laughs> good. I like that. I should, we should do that here. Oh. <laughs> that's so cool. I mean, um, I'm sure you probably heard of them as well. The the, the 
the Detective Poirot series, Miss Marple. They're, they're so fun. Yes, yeah, so th- there's a whole history, uh, and I think this country um, does it very well in that very um, parochial style of typical British crime-solving drama. Um, yeah. Uh, but I, you know, the, our friends in the US have, have taken that genre and, and pushed it onto a whole new modern level, which is fantastic. But the one thing I think about British crime dramas, it still has a big seat in history. It still sits, and people love that. You know, we have people all over the world coming to see places like Oxford and the, the, the sort of root of these places. And now with Grace, more people are, are coming to Brighton, and it's uh, it's kind of um, just something that we do. You know, the whole crime drama. Yeah, I think it's all part, like, I, I'm very close to this, too, because my parents have watched, like, everything British crime drama. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm shocked by how much of it even exists. But, like, I, I think a big part of it is also because there's so many, like, strong fundamentals in these in terms of not things that are necessarily flashy in terms of budget, but things like acting and script writing mm. are very, very fundamentally strong in these things. And I think that's what's really appealing to people is you get strong acting performances strong scripts and that's what really carries it i mean that's what to me is important on television i mean we have a a writer's strike and Mm -hmm. i I think that's incredibly important because i really believe that a script is the thing you need at a baseline level to be good for something even have the potential to be good so yes i i I think that's a huge part of it because that's what my parents at least are very attached to is the acting the writing and also the music is as well is a big part of it because those things when you don't have special effects or huge set pieces action set pieces you've got to rely on all of those things to make something work well and it's the sort of program that you can't really dip in and out of you have to focus your concentration on you can't exactly have tiktok going and then emailing <laughs> you know you you're not going to get the nuances of the, of the plot um and it, as luke says it's great writing often I've been so lucky to work with some amazing scripts and, and some amazing directors over the years. But music always is there to tiny tidy up the things at the end, the stuff they can't fix with acting, the things they can't fix with editing. Matt, can you just, right, I bet this character feel this. Can you, never quite got that because we ran out of time. Can you, so I've been asked to do some interesting things over the years to try and, um, one wouldn't say paper over the cracks, but it's, it's, we're kind of the last stop for being able to change anything. You know, and music has been asked to do some quite amazing things over over, <laughs> over the years I've been working. I also think with some of one thing I've noticed working on some of the things uh, you've worked on is that, in a lot of the times, music adds scale to things and adds weight to things as well. Especially like you writing. I, I know on the most recent uh, season of Grace, there was um, moments where you had quite a large orchestra playing, and it really did add a type of gravitas to things. Um, in a kind of specific way, which, yeah, I, I think that's incredibly important with the music as it adds this kind of depth to everything. Yeah, I, I'd um, always had, always, I always have done actually, that any budget I've had or and more, I've always put to the orchestra to give it scale because if you throw money at the screen, it sticks uh, when it comes to music. Mm. Um, some scores require less, that's a creative decision, but usually if the score... Um, can work with a larger orchestra. We've had up to on Grace within the sixties, and Endeavour's gone into the seventies. Seventy four players. Yeah, mo- most recent show. album for Endeavour. Yeah, was... that was eighty eight. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but the uh, and it's very unusual to be able to, in, certainly in British television, to have that sort of resource available to you. Um, and it, it does does make a difference. You do have that sense of scale about it, and the way that things are written, it's, we're not going overboard with it. It's still that quite traditional sort of semi-classical feel 
but it's, it, you, do, you do benefit. I mean, we've used brass. We have brass sections of tubers and lower brass horns and all sorts of horns and harps and celestes and. And, but it, it kind of, if the way that I treat it is, it's, it's all textural and it's all colour, but it, 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 it doesn't have work. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'd actually like to dig deeper into what you said about the ability for music to misdirect audience, in, especially in, in a crime or detective series like this. Um, how do you spot music in, in this sort of circumstance? Where do you, th- you know, how do you think it can work? It's a discussion, like many, I'm sure all of your composers you've spoken to probably have a similar process when it comes to spotting. I'm in a slightly um, luxurious position is that if they temp it, they never temp it with my music. Mm. So you've already got your score there. It already sounds like you've already got the character and the tones of there. But that's sometimes hard, actually, because you think, well, where can I go from here? You know, this is... If, you, if you've got a piece of Danny Elfman laid up or you've got a piece of uh, Brian Tyler laid, <laughs> laid up, then, uh, yes, you, you, you can kind of get a flavour of where they may be thinking with it. But when your own music's laid up, and it's difficult because you're relating that piece you wrote for a previous situation. So sometimes it's, it can be slightly misdirecting. But to come back to your point about the, the process, um, I have... The, the luxury of being fairly autonomous in this is that I'll get sent the, the pictures. That it'll be a, a sort of fine cut or rough cut. We will have an official spotting session, but it's always open for discussion. They just do what, what you think, you know, come up with your ideas. Mm. And if I feel strongly on something, then I'll do something different. Um, and then when we get in the room with the director and producers, and in this case, I'm lucky enough that I've worked with Sean Evans, who plays Endeavour himself. He's directed at least, I think, three or four of them. And when he comes in, he obviously he's the main character. He's in the room with me. He's, he's in here, and we're spotting it. And it's uh, just a joyous experience to have such a direct. I'm not just writing, you know, the things called Endeavour. I'm with Endeavour writing music for Endeavour. It doesn't get more Endeavour than that. <laughs> so so you, you you've got this wonderful situation where it's such a creative um, process. Uh, it's there's a lot of energy in the room. We love the series. You know, everybody involved who I've worked with over the years on it with the producers and certainly the, the cast members and Z Sean himself. It's a joy to spot and review, um, but there is a lot of latitude, yeah. and there's there's always the request for more music, more music. These things have normally over an hour of music mm. per episode, so we normally have around an hour of music per episode, which is a lot. Yeah. And then you add all the other bits and pieces we add in the the, the repertoire we have to record, um, any sort of pop tracks that we have to come up with as well. So each each episode is quite detailed and um, has to come together in a fairly short space of time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And just going on to, um, so away from Devon, on to some of your album music. So things like, um, I believe, Arrivals. You've got uh, you've got another album that's just come out. Uh, the Variations. The, the Variations. But that's uh, we've, we've released a single of the uh, Foray. Uh, oh, so yes. Yes, that's yes. just come out, which was we a lovely recording about on the there. I've been very bad, actually, about releasing stuff. I've never, I've been so focused. I've been lucky enough to be, to be so busy for such a long time. I've never looking back. I mean, you, know, you never listen to any of your music. It's yeah. just right next project, next project. And it's been like that for very luckily for about seven or eight years now. And so when we're here and working with, with Lev, Luke, James, that, and the team, we've had one point last year, we had 15 projects running simultaneously. Uh, There's at least three or four orchestration and music prep gigs. And we had at least 12 series on the go for television, um, mm. including Devo, Grace. There's a lot of daytime television that I work on as well. And that's quite a quite a thing. You haven't really got time to for any retrospective. You just right. What's next? What's next? How much music do you have to output every day? And it's is a is a love our sum of of music. But 
consequently, I've never released it. I've never thought about <laughs> it. I've, people have asked, yeah, yeah, I'll get around to it. You never get around to it. And then this year, right, right now's the time to start releasing stuff. Um, so we'll hopefully do a Grace album. This is a documentary we're working on at the moment that's going to turn out quite well, I think, so that'll be released and just get into a bit more of a release cycle. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. apparently that's what you have to do to get people to know about you, which is yeah. obvious, really. <laughs> but uh, yes, I've sort yeah, of I, I struggle with it myself sometimes. You've just got to say there's so yeah. much, like There's so much music that I know that I would love to have people listen to. Uh, but it's just, you know, it's, it's the process of having to sort of do a do an album mix of it, do an album master of it, while working on the upcoming projects, that kind exactly. of Exactly. And when you release things, of course, you think about the release ahead of time as well. You often give yourself quite a long runway to do any form of playlist pitching, publicizing and that sort of thing. Yeah. But, but what you say there, learning about the process, I mean, I'm very much the same as you, even though, you know, I've been working in the industry for years, finding the new way of releasing music which has changed significantly since i've been doing that it's still a massive learning curve there's so many more things you'd consider certainly the social media aspect the, the, you know the publicity and uh well somebody told me there's a huge amount of music that's released it's over a hundred thousand tracks every day is released on spotify mm -hmm. or something like this so the world is flooded with music um whereas it wasn't didn't used to be like that at all so now you've got a you may be the best thing in the world but it's that's not about that anymore you yeah. need to get your voice heard out there it's a very different model yeah, to try and do that it's both the uh there, there's the pro and the con of the you know the uh the kind of stop gaps before to put stuff out are gone but that means everything can be flooded so it's very easy to get your work out there in some ways harder to get your work noticed absolutely as well yeah. because there's no gatekeepers anymore nope um, which, yeah, can be a positive and a negative. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. I don't, I don't know which side of the fence I would fall yeah. in the view. It's just I find exploring... I don't tend to explore new music anymore because I think I'm so bombarded with so much of everything. You kind of... It's slightly numbing. <laughs> I mean, it is slightly numbing, really, and I I don't want to be forced down a particular algorithm or I don't want to be forced to, to listen a particular way. So I try, I try and keep my listening ears open. I try and listen to, we had um, some, some world music on the other day and we're trying to expand the kind of music that's outside of our realm. It's very easy for us working where we do to stick soundtracks out, albums on <laughs> yeah, yeah. all day, but we're trying not to. We're trying to expand ourselves into, into different different avenues. Yeah, of course. And the algorithms on, on most streaming platforms, they tend to favour people who already have a certain amount of following. And so to sort of break in and, and get some, you know, get new stuff out there, it's not exactly the easiest thing it does take a certain amount of thought and yeah i don't think i've ever until now really um realized the the value of doing that i think i think the the primary goal for what what we're doing here is to suit the the media that we're working for so whether yeah. it's television film whatever the format is and uh any other secondary use so any other other element that requires effort <laughs> tends, <laughs> tends to be put on the back burner but i'm, I'm now starting to see that the the, the importance and the value of creating um, uh, more of a, a presence for yourself, you do have to engage with these social media platforms. You do yeah. have to engage with the process. You can't be you can't be John Williams where no Twitter account, <laughs> no nothing, no website, but he's yeah. one of the world's greatest composers. You know, there's, there's that level that there's a few people that can get away with that uh, or could. I don't know if that's still the case. If the new yeah. John Williams is out there, I don't know whether they would float to the surface anymore. What's well, the difference? one interesting thing, um, I don't know if we could talk about this yet, but with the Endeavor variations, there is going to be some concerts of that yes. too. And that's an yes. element where yeah. if you release work for something you've, you've worked on, then you open up the opportunity for performances and various other things. So, so that's an avenue 
that and, and also an avenue where people can make money a lot of artists i know that just do you know music as an individual artist that's where they make their money is in live concerts um no, not even on the streaming because you'd have you have to get a massive amount of streams to even make an okay amount of money so that's something that it can kind of open yourself up to if you start releasing yeah music. We, we, we're gonna we're planning a, a concert tour um mm. possibly internationally as well uh of the endeavor plus other pieces our repertoire with um We've got a little little one uh, doing at the end of this year, um, but we've, we're working with um, a number of people, uh, concert promoters, to put together an actual proper um, uh, I'll, I'll sort of plan for it because people do love to come and see uh, Endeavour and anything to do with Endeavour. It's very popular worldwide, and we think that there, there, there is a need for it. And I would also like to take that out and actually perform it in the real world. We haven't got a click track. We haven't got a studio. Let's, let's perform it as real music. And it, I, I hope that it, it would stand up in, the, in that realm and uh very excited to hopefully kick that off which it's not but i think that's probably a lucky sort of year and a half away but you know it's in the planning stages now so hopefully more information on that when we go to concert and it's some big ones as well some big ones and uh, some big venues that we're talking about so let's hope it all all carries on yeah yeah exciting exciting, exciting yeah. times yeah, it would be, um, yeah. yeah and so would you be happy to chat a little bit about your um arrivals album because i uh i feel like i yeah i feel like it has a really bold personality just as i understand or <laughs> as i've heard it's uh, it's full brass it is yeah and so uh, i was just wondering where did that how did that concept come about well it was actually a commission from audio network um they i do a lot of conducting for them and they're a wonderful company to work with and occasionally they asked me to, to fill a particular brief for them and and that one was arrivals which was the sense of grandeur of, of arriving to something and so we came up with a very large brass lineup so I think we had six horns three trumpets three turners a couple of basses tuba and timpani um but we did all that together live <laughs> like I always yeah. do which is just wonderful Abbey Road too oh. and so the whole thought, thought, thought process was just making it big grand it's very Copeland-ish as well that, that kind of broad and uh it was such an honor to do because at the time uh we had our uh principal horn was he's currently principal of BBC Symphony Orchestra Phil Cobb, who was our principal trumpet, who back then was principal of the LSO, yeah. and Tristan, who's a wonderful dear, dear, dear person and friend, he actually played for Stravinsky mm. himself, so he actually played for Stravinsky back in the day. Oh, is he, is he the timpanist? Yes. I've met him oh. before. The stories he's so cool. He played with Bernstein the yeah. lot. He was principal, principal of the uh, principal percussion of uh, timpanist for LSO for so many years. Yeah. So every story that he's got. But he, I've got this wonderful group of players, and that sound of, of that brass hitting you, it's unlike anything other. But it was, it was great. It was kind of, it was an experiment for me to compose something purely for brass, which I love, because I, yeah. I I play a bit of euphonium and um oh, yes yeah, yeah. I, I'm, cello is my true love and piano but yeah so uh, you would have been in like brass bands and stuff yes well. yeah 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 and i've loved all that sort of world for for years and so certainly that colliery sound you know the grimethorpe and all, all that sort of thing it's just it just makes the hairs on the back of my arms go up and it's always a lovely section to, to work with <laughs> when you're conducting but then in this case it was just brass and, and timps and so having the latitude to be able just to record with some of the world's finest players you know people that you've heard on star wars people that you've heard on every major <laughs> film out there they're all there oh is this all right matt is this yeah <laughs> it's, it's it's wonderful so that was a really really fun project to work on yeah did you have euphoniums in the score for no oh. no I, there is i have written a couple of concert works for mm. proper brass band you know with all the cornets euphoniums flugels or the whole thing that's a whole other world of orchestration nightmare i don't know if any of you guys have ever done anything for <laughs> brass band it's a different world you really need to know your stuff for that I, I discovered 
Um, I would love to at some point. I have thought about, can we get it into some sort of score situation so that as soon as I can find the right project for it, yeah, I mean, get, get a brass band in, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, just personally, I feel like the euphonium is one of the most underrated instruments there is. And um, I've known of conductors who have likened the sound of a euphonium to the sound of a human voice. And it's, it's like, well, it's, it's, for me, it's a cello of the brass bands, isn't it? It's yeah, kind absolutely. Of, it's, got a, it's got a such a range, it's got a depth of quality and tone about it, and it's, um, it, it stirs the soul. Yeah, definitely. So if you've um, if you've got one big hot tip on rising for brass to share, what would that be? Don't. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're a brass player. <laughs> no, no. Good tip. Uh, yeah, the, you know, strings are bad enough if you've, if you've got all the, the bowings and the fingers and everything. Brass, and there's so much more to, to understand about it. And I think with strings, there's a homogenous, automatic homogenous sound, brass there isn't you know you really need to get the voicings and the balances right mm. um go and play in a band go and sit in a band go and go and experience what it's like to actually be in a section mm. uh, the, the fact how loud the instruments are and the, their ability to hear i mean when you see these long lines of horns which i often see in studios which is set out for recording purposes i feel sworn, sorry for horn eight they can't hear what horn one's doing so how can you pitch <laughs> put them around the back sit them where they're supposed to be yeah and I, I find that so much recording is set out for the benefit of the recording does not help the player mm. uh, there's one session i did where tuba one was that side of abbey road one Ooh. tuba two was the other side what 300 feet apart it's just to get some kind, some kind of distance. And it was a recording technique, and I'm sure it's fine. And the players are so amazing that they do. But to, to understand writing for brass, it's, um, it's you've got to really experience it and sit in there. And no, not to over... You know, breathe it. Breathe something yeah. yourself. So many things I conduct, there's no breaths. You've got like 300 bars of semi-breathes with no breaths. <laughs> they automatically know where to phrase it, but you don't... You don't other, other things, understanding how much air has to go through a low brass instrument, it's enormous. Yeah huge amount of air has to go through compared to a horn or a trumpet so appreciate the breathing appreciate try doing it yourself try and push that much air out into the into your whatever and you realize why you can't well one of the things i found with when i used to when i started writing and i hadn't learned cello was how i do things that didn't sit very nicely under the fingers because the intervals were obviously fairly big when you're on the C string and so when I started playing you suddenly realise like oh that's why it didn't work you, you, the, the practicalities the technicalities and I think there were two composers it might have been uh, I think Vorjak was one I can't remember who the other was who could play every instrument into the orchestra for at least a grade four mm. it was just a grade four because you understand where the break is on the clarinets it gives you a fundamental practical practical understanding of, of how to play the instrument obviously there's so much more you can go beyond that of how to do it but that's where you're imparting on the player but if you get everything that can basically be done to grade four or five you're doing a good job yeah um, but do do try for, for brass uh, i mean again i'm very lucky to work um in doing a lot of conducting for a lot of people so i often see what works and doesn't work i mean the, you can't really you obviously can learn the theory behind it and every brass combination is different but over time and experience and, and get out there and conduct as much as you can as well get yourself in the situation just experiment and listen and learn from how things work in particular rooms with particular orchestras it's always surprisingly different it always, always amazes me one day it can sound wonderful one day it can't for no apparent reason you know it's a really basic one that i think i didn't understand early on in, in learning instruments and also a lot of other people didn't brass playing is just hard is another thing too is that compared to every instrument is obviously hard but in sessions and things even with the best players this is what you were saying about people being spaced differently to even tuning can be a struggle just because of you know the the kind of physicality of those instruments and things like that so i think sometimes 
you know, like a great example is just translating a line that you could play on piano or strings. It's not that simple on brass. No, it's a very, uh, there's, um, I was talking to um, a couple of very fine horn players recently where they've been doing sessions for very, very major movies and they can't play for two or three weeks after because their lips are physically bleeding. Split. Yeah. Oh, but that's because the writing's so intense. It's fortissimo for four hours. Um, because people are stemming, normally brass would have a little rest while you're rehearsing the strings or recording the woodwind but now you've got nothing they've got they're sitting on their own and they're having to play a very hard instrument that has a lot of physical um effect on your body for a very long time so the stamina now is a massively important thing for a brass player but that's becoming a problem because they're damaging their lips damaging their embouchure mm. because they'll do eight hours you know four hours and eight hours of recording at very very loud levels because it's all big action stuff so yeah i don't think it's right yeah i must say i don't think it's right i don't think there's so much um effort that goes into getting that perfect intonation as well with brothers so much yeah. can change especially with horns how far your hands in and out yeah, the, yeah. the whole thing even the keys themselves that you've got to give them a good chance and a rest you know how often have we gone to a film uh, recording session and you've seen pianissimo horn it's very rare yeah yeah it's always forte it's always, yeah, it's always yeah. brassy you know it's always the same thing <laughs> yeah, yeah but that has an, imp an impact on the player and I, I just think we need to be a bit, little, bit, little bit more careful about how people are writing for brass or film. It's not a sample. Yeah, mm. there is a physical side to it, so please be aware of it. That's, that's the warning I would say. There's another good brass tip within that, which is write brass that's not fortissimo. Sometimes, if you're it's a composer, beautiful. oh, there's so many great textures within all mm. that. I remember on the uh, endeavor, you, you gave this suggestion, but on the endeavor variations, there was a moment that was. I was orchestrating something for strings and you said, do that as a brass chorale. And it was a, a fairly quiet, um, it, it was like maybe going from maybe piano to mezzo forte and stuff like that. And it sounded great with just a brass chorale. And I remember orchestrating that and just thinking about how you hear that all the time in classical repertoire, but in film, especially now, you almost never will hear a brass chorale. Mm. Or woodwind quartet. Or, or yeah, or, which is the same lovely. with that, yeah. And, that's i mean that's a tip all because you're already rejecting so many different like i think there's this thought in a lot of film music that okay if it's quiet brass aren't playing or, or if it's you know if it's anything other than forte we'll just leave the brass do something else it's like they can contribute to that too so yeah yeah i i think um certainly for for some of the larger scale movies there's the sections of the orchestra have kind of been sort of standardized you know there's a certain thing you do with brass there's a certain thing which, which is not I'm, it's a sweeping generalization but it is a pervasive sort of pervasive feeling out there at the moment and i when i see a lot of these scores you do feel as though there's a sort of set regime to the way that the sections of the orchestra have been enacted with but occasionally you'll get the, the beautiful moment where somebody will write something really wonderful just for woodwinds and you haven't got anyone else playing you know you don't have to have everyone playing all of the time and if it's quiet it doesn't just have to be strings and there's a lot of stuff that uh, can be brought by just not doing what everyone else is doing at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> I like the sound of that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you, you, it's, it's rare you sit down and think, what can I do with the orchestra that's new? I know, just yeah. do something that's actually about 300 years old, but it works. So let's do it <laughs> yeah. And euphoniums. Yeah. And euphoniums, quite. Yeah. 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 And so you've also worked on a fair amount of documentary projects as well. Delise it seems to be one of the more recent ones that explores issues of, I believe, homelessness and... Mm -hmm. Um, do you approach writing for documentaries differently as compared to writing for film and TV fiction? Projects? Yes, yeah, I think so. Uh, they're they're more of um, more of a personal story for one, yeah. and they usually have 
uh, something personal to me. So I, uh, this particular director, Stefan, who I was working with, and and this this project was also going to be presented to the Department of Work and Pensions as well. So it was also making a slightly political statement about the just the lack of interaction between government systems people are losing their lives through. So it had some important resonance with me. So you do you do treat it a little bit more seriously, I think. Mm. You know, before we're working with characters, now you work with people, and I think you do have to take a slightly different. And it's, it becomes more intimate. So things like string quartets and pianos, and just a much smaller scale and an intimacy, because you don't want that to detract from the personal message and the personal story of someone's hurt or life story that you're getting across. You don't want to aggrandize it in any mm. way. I think you've got to bring people into the intimacy of what you're doing with the story, particularly with that one. Yeah, yeah. definitely. So, yeah, I had a question with like documentary because like my my professor Francis Shaw, he was brought on during the set. So for deleted, were you brought on, brought into the project before uh, during the filming process? Um, often not actually with documentaries because they they have quite a, a long arc that they have to go through. Uh, so a lot a lot it's not like you've got a schedule of you have to shoot here here and here. Uh, like you would on a production endeavor, I think shot over sort of twenty four, twenty six days, and everything's minutely planned. But with capture of people's lives, it tends to be less precise on that, so it's not practical to be involved. And I, I, I my personal style is, is I actually don't like to be really involved until I can sit down and see the blank film, so I get an emotional reaction to it that's not predicated by my experience. And uh, so I would act like an audience member would. And often I find when I get direction from people who have been on it. I think it's wrong because they're sending me down a path where they know every aspect of every twist and turn of the story. And that's not how an audience member is going to understand it. I need to understand it as a first time viewer is going to understand it. What's my emotional reaction to it? Not if I've worked on it for six months, I know every word of the script. You're going to have a very different emotional reaction to something like that. So I try to avoid getting involved. If there's music involved on set, obviously I'll, I'll get involved from there. But in terms of reading story, no, I try try and keep myself away from it until I have to sit down and actually start writing. Well, speaking of John Williams, that that's very much how John Williams' process works. Right. Like for instance, on on Jaws, he had a very different interpretation of that film than Steven Spielberg did initially. And part of that was, he, he said it exactly very similar to how you said it, is that he said he likes to be like an audience member. Right. Because the, the other thing I think composers can be really useful in, and that I think directors who who are smart in a certain way will do this, is just as like another pair of eyes and ears who hasn't heard your film, because so many people are so entrenched and what they think the film should be. Sometimes you make a film, I've talked to directors about this, and it it can still be great, like Jaws or something like that, but it's not the film you came in intending to make. And so as a composer, you need to recognize that too, because you're scoring the film that's there, not the film they wanted it to be. Absolutely, yeah. And I think you, you hit another thing that's, um, it's, I think sometimes the industry forgets that a composer is also a head of department, HOD. Mm we brought on for our expertise we're not kind of just being told what to do it's you know we're we should we're being asked for our experience of putting music to picture and sometimes that that does get a little bit lost now i'm not trying to overblow one's trumpet or anything like that but there's a lot of wealth of knowledge in everybody in this room and their experience of writing to picture or working with picture and as a, as a director or a production company that's something that you should 
but used as an asset, not just side of sort of gun for hire or a hired <laughs> hack as we call it in the industry. Someone just just do what you're told, because <laughs> yeah. yes, of course you can, and sometimes you have a director who has a very clear view, and that's fine. But you still need to augment it with your own ideas and not just copy the guide. I mean, we, I'm sure everyone's had the opportunity. No, we want it close to the guide. You've got to try and fight for your own artistic opinions on things. Um, which is often can be a little bit hard and a little bit fractious from time to time. Yeah, definitely. And specifically for documentaries as well, like um, there's a saying that goes, most documentaries are found in the edit as compared to, you know, because that, that's where the narrative, that's where the dialectic, the mm -hmm. stories are, are found. And so, you know, uh, sometimes knowing everything that's going on in someone's life might not always be the most helpful in a, in a dramatic sense. Absolutely, and the amount of times we've seen a story shift enormously through the edit. So you get the first cut and it tells you one story, one perspective of, of something, and then by the time it's gone through to the other side, it tells a completely different story, completely different story, tonally, uh, also emotively as well. Yeah. Um, and so that's why, again, better to wait towards the end. <laughs> you can tell a completely different story with... Because obviously documentaries have to be balanced. You have to give both sides to the same story. And sometimes in early edits, you can see it's very clearly one way or very clearly the other. And that can sometimes be a little bit confusing if you're not sure which way to follow. Yeah. What's yeah. The, what story are you actually telling? And you know what, what's, the, what's the, the narrative in this? And that can change absolutely enormously over, over an edit. Yeah, absolutely. So I totally take your point of, yeah, they are formed in the edit. Yeah, definitely. And just about uh, Matt, the conductor. So we, we talked briefly oh, yes. about this in the last podcast the as well. The section we've been waiting for. <laughs> the section we've been waiting for the longest me, time. That I've been waiting for. <laughs> okay, go on, Levin. Go, Levin go, <laughs> Bring go, it on. Sure. Um, we actually, like a couple of episodes ago, we, we, we had an episode on, on conducting and we, we shared our views on uh, the composer as a conductor, the pros and cons, sort of. Um, so, yeah, it would be interesting as a kind of postscript to that, if that's the right word, um, what, what your thoughts are about that. Uh, it's a very, um, I think it's a dividing topic because uh, the fact that you've written the music yourself gives you the most immediacy with the audience, with the, with the orchestra, but it breaks your association with the control room. And in the control room, you can have all your executive directors, the people that are employing you to be there. So you can create an us and them by being that way. So that's the, f the first, first side of it. Um, in its, uh, the advantage of actually conducting is you've got the best sound in the room. You know, you're there, you can balance it naturally. You know, you want it to work. You can change things on the fly a lot easier by communicating with the orchestra and also my I have had stuff before where I've just indicated with my face that, that I don't play tacit and I that they won't play so without doing a second take I can craft and control the cue knowing exactly what I'm going to do uh, so there's the benefit the downside is is that you're not liaising with your clients you're not necessarily having um, the sort of conversations that you can have from the control room because producing which is a lot, a lot of composers do is, is produce the score and sit in the control room with the engineer with the producers execs directors and so forth uh, it's it's a very, it's an interesting room because you're the kind of the, the the sort of kingpin in that studio. You've got the orchestra out there and the conductor. You've got a group of people, so you're managing around 100, 120 people at any one time. So it is a very important role. Some people do it very well, some don't. You've got to be in control. It's your it's your decisions, but you also have to liaise with your clients, and there can be many opposing views. So you've got to become a politician and work. Mm -hmm. So actually, running those rooms 
can be quite interesting. You can go the other route, and I've seen, naming no names, people who are just complete crazy artists and they do what they want and they get away with it. That's fine, you know, that, that, that hurt. But then the musicians get incredibly frustrated because they've got no real direction. They just feel like they're being used as samplers. And so you get a bit of angst on the floor. I've seen that a few times on the orchestral floor. So for me personally, because I th I've always said that if I, were to, if I had the opportunity to do a large format project set, like a, a Disney or a Marvel level thing, I'd probably shift off the podium. Because I think my, my skills would be best placed in just keeping everything controlled and keeping the creative direction of the project in the right way. And then we'll pass over to a colleague and get Lev because he's a very fine conductor as well. So Lev will come and conduct for us. Uh, that's, but I, would, I, wouldn't go to, I wouldn't want to go to somebody who I didn't work with closely uh, in that. So it's a level of trust that you would, I mean, I would love you to do that. I'm sure you will at some day. Right. <laughs> but it's that sort of relationship where you have a, a great trust with your conductor. I work with Andy Brown a lot, who conducts for LMO, and we, we work very well together because um, it's very open and honest. And where Andy and I have had experiences before, we've had, so we, shall we say, a slightly indecisive control room, is that he and I will take control. Hmm. And we will we will start making the musical decisions. And always politely referring to the composer, Would, is, it, is this okay? Let's try this. We think this will solve the problem. So you have to have a great dialogue. But I enjoy it so much. It's the <laughs> best part of the job for me. You get out there with a wonderful orchestra, wonderful players. You just and it's one of those things. I used to get so nervous. You think the worst thing you can do is hold a thin white stick if you're nervous, you know, and shaking, <laughs> and shaking like a fishing rod. Uh, but over time, you 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 start. As soon as you start worrying less about whether you're trying to keep things clear in time, and start worrying more about listening creatively. You know, you've got the click, just get those cans off your ears so you can hear it very quietly at the back of your head. But listen to the room and then work with the musicians to get the sound you want. Then it becomes a, such an enjoyable and creative. So I can't wait to get out of the box. When yeah. I, when I do. It's yeah. the best part of the job for me. Absolutely. And going back to what you said earlier, um, how do you still manage to, um, like, give your clients a, a good feeling, like they're, they're being cared about and looked after and, and stuff like that while you're on the podium? Uh, invite them into the room. This is so and get, actually get them in the room because they can't do the talk back then. They can't say anything. They have to stay quiet. <laughs> so <laughs> interesting. Best way yeah. to sort of verbally <laughs> castrate them so they can't actually do anything. No, no, no. You invite them into the room just for the reason for them to experience what a, it's such a rare thing. You know, people used to go and see, and they still do go and see orchestras, but that's fine. But go and sit in one. Go and sit around one. Be like two feet from a violinist. Go and sit next to a cellist, or go and sit next to somebody playing the horn, or in the woods. And it's just a wonderful experience. We've done tricks before where we've put extra chairs and invited guests to go and sit in the chairs within the orchestra. And they've always had an amazing time. No one gets to experience world-class players, but you get to sit inside the orchestra. And that's a great method for getting people to buy into to what you're doing as well. Um, but in terms of collaborations, everyone I've worked with so far has always been very engaging. And obviously with directors, I'm the person that's been there across more, more of the series than, than they have. So they're sort of using me to help them with their creative direction, which is, I think I was doing lots of independent films, lots of independent things, you know, just standalones, it'd be quite a different process. But on these long format, long, long running shows, um, it's, it's, it's sort of slightly easier because you're kind of the voice of, of the expert there. You're the person that's been there the longest. You can help get their, their ideas across. Um, 
And it's been a good communicator. As I said, those years I spent in project management have always stood me in good stead because it's always about bringing people with you. I try not to be belligerent. I try not to, you know, belittle people. And, you know, if there's something gone wrong, I will try to make sure it's my fault. And don't blame anybody. Don't blame any public. You can shout at them later, but not publicly. Take the blame publicly and then deal with it separately. So you, you just try to include everybody um, and uh, just try and keep keep open to, to ideas. Because you can get really frustrating. You're there, time's ticking away, and you think, you know, we need to make a decision, somebody. And then you have to step up and take yeah. control. £10,000. <laughs> conservatively, yeah. conservatively. It's very expensive. I, I am lucky because I have worked with them for so long that when we're working with an orchestra, you're talking to the orchestra by name, not section. And I'm so honoured and privileged to be able to do that. But it creates an incredibly creative environment because you're talking to people not instruments mm. so you, you don't say do you learn Martin. everyone's names yeah I know you really will say healthy. I don't know you've ever heard me say trumpets I might say collectively woodwinds can we do this but if it's bassoons Gavin can you do this or if it's flute Karen can you do this or yeah. you know, whoever we've got and yeah so working with people so regularly you get to know their names and obviously they know me over the years as well yeah. so it, that level of respect takes a long time to build up and it's but i would definitely work on it for so any young composer who wants to get into this world and actually wants to conduct their own music yes get out there make mistakes learn but before you go in there make sure you don't slow things up you've got to know what you're doing in terms of plan you might not have the technique perfectly you might not work it but your ears have got to be the thing that lead you you've got to know if you're adding something with your ears in terms of the sound and creatively managing the whole process. And I've got a question uh, too, Matt, yeah. real quick. Is yeah, do you find off that question? Do you find sometimes players are a little bit more skeptical of when composers, if they don't know them, conduct their own music? Because I, I, yeah, in my experience, yes, I'd yeah, imagine yes. People yeah. I know, yeah, I, I would say that there's there's an automatic as, as I said previously, there's an automatic very low bar set for anyone who they don't know um, who, who's conducting them for the first time. Um, they don't know how they're going to get in the way, whether they're going to slow things up, do their job, whether they're just going to end up talking the whole time and slowing things down. So they, they really don't know. And but, so they, they have a very sort of low bar when it comes to to that. And occasionally, obviously, you'll get... Um, but you don't really get to that position because if you are someone they know, you've worked them a lot. And that's where you grow together, you know, with an orchestra and a conductor and an orchestra, especially in London. You know all the players, the whole orchestra by name. You're in the bar with them afterwards or you go out for curry somewhere. <laughs> you have a, a very, very um, outside the orchestra experience yeah. with them. And that's where you get to know people. You know, yeah, you know absolutely. people. Absolutely. Uh, but when it becomes the session, it's all very professional. I got a quick question: is if, if just a, a quick tip, if you were in front of an orchestra you didn't know you're conducting, I'm sure you've been in this situation. What's the quickest, or not the quickest? What's something you would do to kind of win them over? Just like immediately in the session, like is there something you would say, a demeanor you would take to just kind of, you know, break the tension or just kind of get them on your side, get yourself on the same page. I don't think there's anything you can do. I, people tell jokes, people trying to be a bit jovial. I've mm -hmm. seen that done, but it doesn't work. They're not interested in that kind of thing. Yeah. I've worked with some regional orchestras, some very fine ones, and some have been very frosty. The first thing to do is, is to, if something goes wrong, not just to carry on playing, spot the problem, identify it, solve it. Got it. All right, yeah. sorry, stop, trumpets, that's a D. Sorry, not a C. You'll have them. Yeah. They know, you, the moment you've got ears, they know you're you've got you're, you're looking for the score. You mm -hmm. understand the score. You know the difference between what you're hearing and what you're seeing. You can correct it. 
then you've got them. Yeah. So it's not really, I don't think there's anything you can really do to win. You have to prove yourself. Mm -hmm. And that usually comes with spotting a mistake. Mm. And they need to know that you're listening to them. Yes. Yeah. I've yeah, always said so. this the ears. Yeah. It's always, it always the ears. You know, you, they, they know that you've got critical hearing, that you can listen to something and you have no time. You know, so you, you've got a score that is often very large as well. So you, you've, there's a certain amount, there's only a certain amount you can take in. But using your ears, you might not be right. Check the score; it's not right. But you can fix it. Yeah. Mm. Worst thing to do is there's a million mistakes, and then you say, "Fine, move on." That's when you'll lose them immediately. Well, then, it, then it's like That's you know, it. it's a coach in sports. If you're, you know, making if if you mess up a play and nobody notices, well, it's then like, well, none of the plays matter now. You know, <laughs> is is yeah, I, yeah. That, that's a great point. Just just showing them that you're a musician too in a yes. lot of ways. Yeah. 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 yeah that that's a that's a really really good point. Um, and, you know, back to what you said just now, it's about knowing yourself as a musician as well, knowing your skill sets and playing to that, whether it is learning something that you don't already know or putting yourself forward on occasions where you are, you, you know that you're capable of adding value to um, a project or to a situation. And um, yeah, I think I, <laughs> that was a that was a really, really inspiring chat. Oh, I've, lovely. I've absolutely you. loved every moment oh, that's of it. Very cool. and, um, <laughs> we've run just slightly over time, actually. I could talk for but hours. So yeah, that's... but it, it's been it's been really, really good. I'm sure all of us have a lot more questions to to ask, and hopefully at some point we'll be able to. to meet you again. And, no, thank you very much, Harry. And, it's been um, a joy. Yeah, and thank you so much for coming on board today. It's no been problem. it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for all of us as well. Thank you so much. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram and TikToks at Composers in a Jukebox. We got loads more interesting episodes cooking in the edit, which we can't wait to share. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our pages on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts to be notified of any future episodes that we're releasing. 